From New York, this is Democracy Now! Today, the U.S.-India partnership is a cornerstone of a free and open Indo-Pacific. And our deepening bonds show how technological innovation and growing military cooperation between two great powers can be a force for global good. As the U.S. moves to deepen military ties with India, President Biden's hosting a state dinner tonight for Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who will also address a joint session of Congress. Several progressive Democrats plan to boycott Modi's speech over his human rights record. We'll go to Mumbai, India for the latest. Then to China, as President Biden calls Xi Jinping a dictator shortly after Secretary of State Tony Blinken meets with Xi in Beijing. China's blasted Biden's comments, saying it's an open political provocation. Plus, we look at the debate over regulating artificial intelligence technology. My administration is committed, is committed to safeguarding America's rights and safety, from protecting privacy to addressing bias and disinformation, to making sure AI systems are safe before they are released. We'll speak with Dr. Joy Bolamwini, the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. She met with President Biden this week in San Francisco to discuss the dangers of AI. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A Spanish charity says as many as 39 asylum seekers have drowned, including four women and a baby, after their boat sank in the Atlantic Ocean near the Canary Islands. It's the latest in a deadly series of shipwrecks involving asylum seekers along the Atlantic route to Spain, where last year at least 45 shipwrecks and over 500 deaths were reported. Meanwhile, police in Pakistan have arrested seven people accused of sharing responsibility for the deaths of as many as 700 migrants who died last week, drowning after their overcrowded fishing vessel sank off the coast of Greece. Israel's military has killed three Palestinians in the first targeted assassination airstrike in the occupied West Bank in nearly two decades. Palestinian fighters with Hamas and Islamic Jihad promised retribution for the drone attack, which came just two days after the Israeli military used U.S.-made Apache helicopters during a raid in Jenin that killed seven Palestinians and wounded dozens of others. Elsewhere in the West Bank, hundreds of mourners joined a funeral procession for Omar a 27-year-old Palestinian father of two who was killed Wednesday when hundreds of Israeli settlers attacked the village of Termas Aya, setting fire to homes and vehicles. Katyn's mother, Hanan, spoke to reporters at the funeral. He was the first one to go out whenever there were settlers. I would say, my darling Omar, stay a little farther away from them and don't forget your kids. But he would say that I will take care of the kids. He used to tell me that every time. The U.S. State Department's Office of Palestinian Affairs said it was appalled by the attacks on Palestinians by Israeli settlers, adding, quote, we call for Israeli authorities to immediately stop the violence, protect U.S. and Palestinian civilians, and prosecute those responsible, unquote. 
In Ukraine, an explosion has damaged a key bridge connecting the Russian-occupied territory of Crimea to the Ukrainian mainland. Russia-backed officials say the damage to the Changar Bridge appeared to be caused by a long-range cruise missile of the kind supplied to Ukraine by the UK and France. Elsewhere, Russia's military says it shot down three drones outside Moscow that appeared to be targeting military warehouses. At the Kremlin, Russian President Vladimir Putin said a counter offensive launched by Ukraine earlier this month has largely stalled. As I've already said, as is well known, the Ukrainian armed forces started the counteroffensive on June 4th using their strategic reserves. Oddly enough, currently we're seeing a certain lull. It has to do with the fact that the enemy is suffering serious losses. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich appeared in a Moscow courtroom today where a judge denied his request to be released from pretrial detention. Reporters were briefly allowed to photograph Evan, who was held in a glass enclosure wearing a T-shirt and blue jeans. He's been jailed since March on espionage charges and faces up to 20 years in prison if convicted. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is in Washington, D.C. as part of a four-day state visit. President Biden will hold a formal state dinner for Modi tonight, hours after he becomes the first Indian Prime Minister to ever address a joint session of Congress. On Wednesday, New York Congressmember Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez said she will join four other Democratic lawmakers in boycotting Modi's address, writing in a statement, quote, a joint address is among the most prestigious invitations and honors the United States Congress can extend. We should not do so for individuals with deeply troubling human rights records, she said. All five Indian American members of Congress, including California's Rokhana and Congressional Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal, are attending Modi's speech. We'll have more on Narendra Modi's state visit after headlines. A federal judge in Washington, D.C., has sentenced a California man to more than 12 years in prison over his role in the January 6, 2021, insurrection at the Capitol. 40-year-old Daniel D.J. Rodriguez shouted, Trump won, as he was led from the courtroom following a sentencing Wednesday. U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson called Rodriguez a one-man army of hate who came to Washington, quote, spoiling for a fight, unquote. Body camera video played at the trial shows Rodriguez repeatedly used a stolen police taser to electrocute Officer Michael Fanon, who suffered a heart attack after he was violently dragged into the mob, beaten and shocked. On Capitol Hill, House Republicans voted Wednesday to censure California Democratic Congressmember Adam Schiff, accusing him of spreading false claims about former President Trump and the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. Schiff is just the third member of Congress to face censure in over 40 years. He served as lead manager during Trump's first impeachment trial and had a prominent role in the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Congressmember Schiff spoke from the House floor just ahead of Wednesday's vote. Today, I wear this partisan vote as a badge of honor, knowing that I have lived my oath, knowing that I have done my duty to hold a dangerous and out-of-control president accountable. After the House voted 213 to 209 along party lines to censure Congress membership, House Democrats erupted into chants of shame. 
As House Speaker Kevin McCarthy called for order, several Democrats shouted, what about Santos? A reference to New York Republican Congress member George Santos, who has not faced censure by his party, even after his indictment on multiple felony charges. Meanwhile, far-right Congress members Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene got into a heated argument on the House floor Wednesday over competing resolutions that seek to impeach President Joe Biden over his handling of the U.S. southern border. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy called on Republicans to vote today to send Boebert's impeachment resolution for review by the Judiciary and Homeland Security Committees. In news from Guantanamo, prosecutors have discovered there are videos of guards forcing a Saudi prisoner to leave his cell around the time the man reportedly admitted to plotting the attack on the USS Cole off the coast of Yemen in 2000, which killed 17 sailors. Attorneys for Abdel Rahim al-Nashiri have said his admission of guilt was tainted by years of torture, first at CIA black sites and later at Guantanamo. The UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention recently called for the immediate release of al-Nashiri due to his mis treatment. In news from Atlanta, Georgia, opponents of a proposed massive police training center known as Cop City are hoping to begin collecting signatures soon to force a citywide referendum on the project in November. On Wednesday, the Atlanta city clerk approved the language of the referendum petition to stop the $90 million project. Meanwhile, The Intercept reports Georgia's Attorney General Chris Carr has played a key role in the case of a legal observer with the Southern Poverty Law Center who faces domestic terrorism charges after being arrested in March. The DeKalb County's district attorney had recommended dropping charges against the legal observer, Thomas Webb Jurgens, but Georgia's Republican Attorney General overruled them. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has approved the sale of lab-grown meat for the first time. The USDA's approval on Wednesday came after the Food and Drug Administration in March cleared cultured chicken cell material made by the company Good Meat as safe for use as human food. Proponents say lab-grown meat provides a humane option for people who wish to consume meat but don't want to contribute to animal suffering, greenhouse gas emissions, and other environmental damage caused by factory farming. And a court in Montana has heard closing arguments in a landmark lawsuit brought by 16 young people who say their state violated their constitutional rights to a clean environment as it pushed policies promoting the burning of coal, oil and gas. A witness for the plaintiffs testified that Montana has never denied a permit for a fossil fuel project. A ruling from a Montana state district judge is expected sometime in July. It could set an important precedent for similar lawsuits pending in other states. Meanwhile, a coalition of more than 250 groups delivered a petition to Attorney General Merrick Garland on Wednesday demanding the Department of Justice end its opposition to allowing a youth climate lawsuit against the U.S. government to proceed in court. The petition was signed by over 50,000 people. This is John Beard, Jr., executive director of the Port Arthur Community Action Network in Texas, which is supporting the children's climate lawsuit. Our youth will be living here long after us. Therefore, we must support their quest to secure climate justice and protect their constitutional rights. The youth across the nation, especially youth living in environmental justice communities like the frontline Gulf Coastal communities of color in my own part of the country, Port Arthur, Texas, continue to suffer harm from the climate crisis, including pollution and also from social and environmental injustice.
And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is in Washington as part of a four-day state visit. President Biden will hold a formal state dinner for Modi tonight. Modi will also address a joint session of Congress today. He becomes the first Indian prime minister to address Congress twice. This comes as the Biden administration's attempting to strengthen military and diplomatic ties with India as part of an effort to counter China's growing power in the Indo-Pacific region. Earlier this month, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin traveled to New Delhi. We are absolutely... Uh not trying to establish a NATO in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we continue to work uh, with, with like-minded uh, countries to um, ensure that the region remains free and open uh, so that uh, commerce can prosper and ideas can continue to be exchanged. Uh, and, uh, and so we will continue that work. And so certainly uh, India and us uh, share the same vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific. The Biden administration's warm embrace of Narendra Modi is a marked shift in U.S. policy. For years, Modi was banned from even entering the United States over his role in anti-Muslim riots in 2002 that left over 1,000 dead in Gujarat, where Modi was the chief minister. Human rights groups have decried Modi's record as prime minister. At least five Democratic lawmakers have announced plans to boycott Modi's joint address to Congress today. Their representatives, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman. In a post on social media, Tlaib wrote, It's shameful that Modi has been given a platform at our nation's capital, his long history of human rights abuses, anti-democratic actions targeting Muslims and religious minorities and censoring journalists is unacceptable, she said. More than 70 Democrats in the House and Senate have also signed a letter urging Biden to focus on human rights and talks with Modi. One of the signatories of the letter is Jamie Raskin, who said he will also not attend Modi's speech, but not as an act of protest. Instead, Raskin will be attending his daughter's wedding. We go now to Mumbai, where we're joined by the Indian journalist Rana Ayub, who's a global opinions writer for The Washington Post. She's the author of The Gujarat Files, Anatomy of a Cover-Up. Rana, welcome back to Democracy Now! Thank you for joining us from Mumbai. If you can talk about the royal treatment that Narendra Modi is getting here on his four-day trip. He led yoga exercises on World Yoga Day yesterday in front of the United Nations. Now the the joint session of Congress, and then a lavish state dinner with President Biden tonight. Your response. Again, it's always good to see India getting this kind of treatment and acknowledgement in the U.S. as a country, as a democracy, right? Um, when Indians for the longest time, you know, uh, the kind of stereotypes about India for the longest time have been about snake charmers, etc., etc., uh, having said that, what does India bring on the table, which is its biggest asset? It's democracy, India's democratic nature, its constitution, its secularism, its inclusiveness. Um, in the nine years that Narendra Modi has been in power, uh, it has been on a decline. And the U.S., more than any other country, is aware because just about a month before Prime Minister Modi was in the United States, the United States Religious Freedom Report 
uh, called India a country that's attacking its minorities, its 200 million Muslim minorities. The U.S. is very well aware of what's happening. But it is opening up, um, it's, it's rolling the red carpet uh, for Modi because at the end of the day, what matters is that the U.S. needs an ally against China, an ally against Russia. The U.S. needs um, India as a country with 1.4 billion population. The U.S., I mean, geographically, India is more well-placed than any other um, Asian country. So human rights, I mean, really, is, is that even a concern any anymore for world leaders? I mean, it is, it is embarrassing um, to kind of see this. I really wish that human rights was also something that was considered through this royal treatment. So, Rana, you, if you could elaborate on what the situation is, in fact, inside India, you've written extensively on the uh, increasing crackdown on the press, as well as the systematic attacks against not just Muslims, uh, but also the Dalit community in India. If you could explain what the situation is. Well, Narmeen, this year, um, the, India is on the 161st position in the World Press Freedom Index, just about three positions above Russia. This is the world's largest democracy. Um, this year, Rahul Gandhi, the leader of opposition, has been sentenced to two years in prison for a defamation case. Um, at this point of time, think tanks in India have had their licenses revoked. Uh, human rights activists are in jail. Um Muslims, uh, 220 million Muslim population, the Dalits, as you rightly pointed out, the lower caste in India, the Christian minorities, at this point of time, the northeastern state of Manipur, when Prime Minister Modi has not spoken, spoken a single word about the northeastern state of Manipur, where the, for the last four weeks, more than 100 people have lost their lives between two tribal uh, factions. That's where that's where the state of minorities is in India, right? I'm not just Muslim minorities, but across the board. Uh, and these are the ultimate realities. Our textbooks are changing. Our lived reality is changing. Our people are being lynched uh, on the streets on allegations of consuming beef. History is being rewritten in India, where Gandhi's assassin, Nathuram Gorse is being re- is being revisited as some kind of a hero. I just wrote a piece in the in the Washington Post about India's biggest film industry, Bollywood. Uh, it is being weaponized uh, with anti-Muslim hate with some of the most anti-Islamophobic films. Prime Minister Narendra Modi in an election rally just a month before he is just visiting the United States um, campaigned for the film, endorsed the film and emphatically asked the people in the rally to go watch the film, a film which is Islamophobic, which says that Muslims are engaging in acts of terror. That's the reality of a country of 1.4 billion population, Narmeen. And Rana, could you also uh, respond to what some have suggested uh, is playing into this uh, lavish reception of Modi in the U.S., namely uh, the increasing prominence and also simply the growth of the Indian diaspora uh, here in the U.S.? It's uh, the country's one of the country's uh, largest immigrant groups and the fastest growing voting bloc. So if you could speak about this diaspora, the Indian diaspora here, and to what extent they're sympathetic uh, to the Modi government. Well, the Indian diaspora, I mean, historically has always been very, very pro-Modi. And it's a very, very strong and very, very influential uh, block of people in the United States, not just in the United States. It's all over the world, right? The Indian diaspora has been has contributed um, in all spheres, in all aspects of life. 
but the indian diaspora i mean for the first time in in as as far as i remember uh you saw bulldozers which are which have become symbols of muslim repression being used by the diaspora and republic day parades in new jersey uh i have not seen something like that before so indian diaspora by and large historically even after the two, 2002 riots when prime minister modi presided over or was the chief minister when 1000 muslims were massacred uh were very vocal in their support of prime minister modi in fact when mr modi was not uh, was denied visa by the united states for his checkered history on human rights the the diaspora in the in the us played a key part in making sure uh, that you know that modi was brought into the united states that modi's popularity increased uh, so diaspora is extremely significant to what we are seeing right now in fact when when uh, when modi was uh, you know at the trump rally just on his previous visit when you know when uh, when uh, when Trump hosted Modi, uh, um, and you know Modi asked the diaspora to vote for Trump. He, both of them, know that the Indian diaspora is a big voting bloc that is extremely significant at that point of time to Trump, and of course now to Biden. It is, it, it is something that cannot be ignored. And the significance of the non-aligned um, posture of India when it comes to China and the United States, would you say that is a key reason the U.S. is rolling out the red carpet for him? And also, Rana, you're in Mumbai, so you can't be in Washington, D.C. But after joint comments between Biden and um, Modi this afternoon, they're going to have a kind of joint news conference. I mean, they're going to allow journalists to ask questions. And apparently, um, uh, it's, and you can tell us if this is the case, extremely unusual uh, for Narendra Modi to take questions from the press. Um, he hasn't held a single news conference in India since becoming prime minister about nine years ago. Uh, in May 2019, he attended a press conference but did not take questions. What question yes, would you ask him? Question. What question would I ask him? Uh, I would say that he should take a press conference in India to begin with and and basically speak to us journalists. And um, I I mean, here is a man. I mean, I have a lot of questions to ask him, but here is a man who was, who was looked at the media with a great deal of disdain. I mean, even if you see the BBC documentary where during his post-Gujarat days, um he you know when british journalists questioned him about human rights he said you guys are propagandists uh mr modi has not taken up single press conference in 9 years as the prime minister it it is it it has never before happened in the history of democratic india um uh, his ministers have referred to journalists as news traders and prostitutes some of india's top journalists um uh, have been attacked by this government uh, kashmiri journalist i have to add here there is a full page ad in the washington post where journalist um, uh with journalist um, you know mentioned uh, by multiple journalism organizations who have been behind bars for writing critical stories on mr modi i believe that he's taking a press conference today but i'm also told it's just about one question from the foreign press and one question from the indian press uh so i'm not sure what kind of a press conference this is going to be and how many how many scathing questions will be asked about him but if i have to ask him one question uh would it be to take a press conference in india and stop stifling democratic and 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 independent voices in the country and what is it doing to that effect and that issue of china the non-aligned posture of india right now and how critical that is to uh, the united states to put pressure on modi to take sides absolutely amy i mean we just saw that tony blinken was in china and then we saw what happened with president biden uh, calling him a dictator so it, 
at this point of time, the only uh, it one of the most significant allies that the United States can count on is India. Uh, although India has, I mean, and India needs India needs the United States as much um, because China is trying to exert its influence on India's northeastern borders and northeastern states. So we also have a China problem as much as the United States has a China problem. Uh, so I think China is looming large over this entire um, uh, discussion with Modi. Besides the fact that, um, as opposed to China, we are one of the biggest markets for for labor. So that is something that is being considered. But if, so I think China is playing a very, very big role in this. And so is Russia. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, India has always been this non-aligned partner. I mean, historically. Right. So I don't think it's going to change that status very soon. I don't think India can uh, the U.S. can count on India as an ally. Um, but I think at this point of time for both India and the U.S., it's a mutually beneficial relationship. We have to see how long does this last. Uh, Rana, could you talk about this, the, the India's growing role, not only as a regional power, which arguably it's always been in South Asia, but also as a global power? India is set to host uh, the G20 summit uh, as the president of the, of the G20 in September uh, in India. And if you could just speak about how this fits in, Modi's visit to his, the India's increasing role under his leadership around the world. Well, Mr. Modi has been, you know, for the last one year, India is preparing for the G20 summit. He has been meeting world leaders. He, he went to Australia where he got a massive reception. Uh, he went to Papua New Guinea. He has been going to countries. He is part of the Quad. So at this point of time, geographically, because of its geopolitical position, India has a very, very significant role to play uh, in global politics. Uh, but this is and we are, I mean, in a country of 1.4 billion people, some of the most skilled people. Uh, that we have offered, uh, we have to offer uh, across platforms, across, uh, you know, whether it is engineers or, or, or all, all sorts of uh, skill sets. Indians are everywhere. So we are, in a way, a soft power, which, which the world is looking at and that nobody can deny. Uh, but this visit that we are looking at of uh, Modi's visit to the United States is also going to be a significant visit for India domestically because Modi is going to the next general election in India in 2024. So, you know, Modi has been selling this idea of what he calls in Hindi, the Vishwaguru or the global leader. In India, has been telling, he has been telling Indians that he's the one who's negotiating a peace deal between, between Russia and the world. Um, he's talking about taking on China. So I think he has now, the last two general elections in India, he's gone over domestic issues in the 2024 general elections. Modi is going to posture himself as the new world leader, which every country is looking for to solutions. So that's the role of India in the global stage. And, and that issue of Russia, uh, um, Russia invading Ukraine, then India becomes the primary buyer of Russian crude oil. Can you talk about the significance of this? And do you think that Modi uh, could become a mediator uh, on the Ukraine war? Well, I would I would not say that Modi could play the mediator. We have been buying Russian oil and a lot of editorials have said that we have saved uh, the economy by, by buying cheap Russian oils. At this point of time, I do not think India, not not just not just Modi, but any even even the opposition leader, Rahul Gandhi, has said that probably he would have told the same line as Narendra Modi. I do not think India is going to take a position vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Uh, Indian prime minister has said that he is trying to broker peace. 
uh, vis-a-vis Russia. He's looking, going to look at a peaceful solution. Uh, but as far as Russia is concerned, Modi and Putin have a long-standing, long-standing friendship, and India and Russia have had a have had a unique relationship over the past decades. I do not think that you know, President Putin is rolling the red carpet. But I don't think he can get uh, Prime Minister Modi to agree to something significant on Russia just yet. There's a lot of talk about this, but we have not seen anything significant vis-a-vis Russia on India's part. And Rana, finally, before we conclude, uh, if you could talk about, I mean, the fact that you've just mentioned, I mean, uh, India has always been uh, the largest importer of arms from Russia. Now, there's some discussion about how uh, India is now diversifying uh, uh, because of short, the shortage of arms in, in Russia, given the war in Ukraine, and what the U.S. hopes uh, to uh, uh, arrange with India in this respect to provide military uh, equipment from the U.S. to India. Could you repeat the question, please, Narmeen? I'm saying that because uh, India has relied principally on on Russia for its military imports, uh, the vast majority uh, coming from uh, Russia to India, but India is now diversifying the source of its arms, including possibly from the U.S. What do you expect to come out of this meeting uh, here now on military, on the military well, I mean, Indian pundits and DC punditry has been, I mean, political analysts have been saying that probably uh, that there is going to be a shift in terms of, you know, U.S. offering its own um, its own arms and weapons um, uh, to the to India. And that, you know, probably there is going to be a deal which, which, which will be announced tomorrow or day after. I'm going to look at it with a great deal of skepticism and apprehension. I'm going to wait to see what comes out of it. But if that does happen... I still am not very optimistic that Mr. Modi is going to take a position on Russia, even if even if even if the fact that we have multiple sources of getting our arms and weapons uh, besides Russia. I don't think that is something that we need to get extremely uh, optimistic about. I don't think that's going to change the situation just yet. Rana, you want to thank you for being with us. Indian journalist, global opinions writer for The Washington Post, author of Gujarat Files, Anatomy of a Cover-Up, speaking to us from Mumbai, India. Coming up, we look at U.S.-China relations as President Biden calls for Xi Jinping, calls Xi Jinping a dictator. Back in 30 seconds. Charlie Kala by Sunny Singh here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermi Sheikh. China's blasted President Biden for calling Chinese President Xi Jinping a dictator. Just days after Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Xi Jinping in Beijing in an attempt to stabilize relations amid soaring tension over Taiwan and other issues. Blinken was the first U.S. Secretary of State to travel to China since 2018. 
Biden made his comment on Monday during a private fundraiser. He was talking about the U.S. shooting down a Chinese surveillance balloon in February. Biden said, quote, and the reason why Xi Jinping got very upset in terms of when I shot that balloon down with two boxcars full of spy equipment in it is he didn't know it was there, Biden said. Biden went on to say that's a, quote, great embarrassment for dictators when they didn't know what happened, unquote. China's foreign spokesperson, Mao Ning, blasted Biden's comments. The relevant remarks by the U.S. side are extremely absurd, irresponsible, and seriously violate basic facts, diplomatic protocol, and China's political dignity. They are an open political provocation. China is strongly dissatisfied with and firmly opposed to this. To talk more about U.S.-China relations, we're joined by Ho Feng Hong. He's a professor of political economy and sociology at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. His books include Clash of Empires, From Chimerica to the New Cold War, and The China Boom, Why China Will Not Rule the World. Professor, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Why don't you start off with this San Francisco fundraiser where Biden made these comments about uh, Xi being a dictator just after Antony Blinken, the secretary of State met with Xi in Beijing. Yes, definitely. That um, what Biden said, in fact, is uh, true in every word that uh, Xi Jinping, everybody know that he is a dictator. It's the slow, uh, even the presidential term limit of his road, and he's not elected, and uh, he ruled China authoritarian in a very authoritarian way. And also Biden said, uh, which is true, is that it would be an embarrassment if uh, Xi Jinping didn't know what is going on about the balloon. But uh, the China's uh, response is right in the sense that uh, it is kind of a violation of the diplomatic protocol because um, many, many times for the sake of maintaining good relations, uh, leaders uh, don't talk about some embarrassing or inconvenient truth to each other. So, the, But Biden has his own reason uh, to talk like that about Xi Jinping after Brinken visit to China uh, because there is a voice that uh, Brinken um, is played and, and, and is not treated uh, as, uh, as a kind of equal uh, compared to his predecessors, uh, Mike Pompeo and uh, John Kerry when they are meeting with C. So uh, for the internal, for the internal domestic audience, and and Biden need to uh, shake the impression that uh, he's weak on China. So he uh, uh, need to talk tough on about China after the meeting. Well, it's an extremely unfortunate, irrespective of the veracity of the claim, it's unfortunate timing because there were some uh, advances in U.S.-China talks, at least, in resuming talks with Blinken's visit to China. If you could uh, elaborate on uh, whose initiative it was that these talks took place in the first place, that Blinken went to China, his initial visit was postponed because of the Uh, controversy around the spy balloon and the fact that China initially wanted to see first uh, the U.S. Treasury Secretary and the Commerce Secretary, but the U.S. had said, had insisted that that Blinken would come first. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Right now, uh, China's economy is in uh, bad shape, uh, even after the pandemic. 
of the opening that the rebounds, the why they talk about expected rebounds in China didn't uh, happen, and uh, Chinese local government and real estate developer and 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 uh, the important enterprise are still heavily in debt. So China really at this time need the help from the, the U.S. economically. Uh, so it is why China would uh, want to see some officials from the U.S. that is in charge of the economy. But of course, from the U.S. side of the thing, that the priority of the Biden administration is to um, minimize the risks of uh, the U.S.-China relations and prevent it from escalating into military conflict. And while U.S. is uh, very... Uh, uh, occupied with uh, Russian incursion in Ukraine on that front, that uh, U.S. really want to, um, to put up some kind of a guardrail to prevent the deterioration of U.S.-China relations. So uh, it is also the consideration behind Biden's uh, sending uh, Blinken to meet with C to establish some uh, discussion and communication channel again diplomatically. Uh, so it is. Uh, kind of a situation that uh, the expectation about a talk between uh, Blinken and, and C is a lot high and after all it, is only, it only lasted 35 minutes including translation. It's very short but the fact that uh, they start to talk again and then they also uh, agree to talk more is already a kind of achievement. And could you talk more about uh, uh, Professor Hong, the economic uh, dimensions to uh, this meeting, uh, the fact that we're speaking now as Prime Minister Modi is in the U.S., the U.S. is hoping in part to shift part of its manufacturing, the, the companies, U.S. companies operating in China, to shift manufacturing yeah. from China to India by way of example. At the moment, 95 percent of iPhones are made in China, but Apple is now considering, is moving manufacturing to India which is projected to produce 25% of iPhones uh, in just two years. Uh, China has also hosted several CEOs of tech companies uh, in recent months, including Elon Musk, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan, and Apple's Tim Cook. So if you could talk about this, the potential shift of uh, a U.S. economic interest from China to India... Definitely, it is already happening that, uh, for one thing, that uh, the China's demographic and economic structures have been shifting, and we have been uh, hearing a lot of reports about the rising wage in China, also the demographic uh, fall in China, that uh, China is running out of young people, a uh, lot as much as uh, like 20, 30 years ago when there's a lot of young, educated, uh, low-cost labor. Uh, India is going to be the biggest uh, nation demographically um, in the years to come. Uh, and India economy has been growing as a pace now faster than China. Uh, so the corporations uh, from the U.S., uh, from uh, Japan and many other parts of the world is already diversifying the operation in China uh, to India and other other states in Southeast Asia, but uh, these Southeast Asian countries, none of them are as big demographically and economically than India. Uh, so really, India is the place that many uh, corporations uh, trying to move to. Of course, it's very difficult to to move all of their operation that is already existing in China uh, to India. Uh, it will take time, uh, but uh, escalating U.S.-China competition and the risk 
of kind of uh, sanctions, which is like what U.S. imposed and, and the world imposed on Russia after its invasion of Ukraine, uh, increase the risk uh, that, that anybody have investment in, in China. And also the Chinese policy itself, that the crackdown on big tech and its crackdown on due diligence uh, consultancy firms uh, in gathering economic data in China. Uh, also, the, the COVID lockdown the experience uh, give uh, many U.S. corporations also a cold feet. And then they really worry that the Chinese uh, economic environment and the government economic policy is no longer as predictable, as, as friendly to foreign enterprises as before. So it's all these factors add together. We see that uh, even Apple, as you mentioned, uh, is already uh, diversifying uh, their operation uh, to India and also to Vietnam as well uh, to minimize the risks uh, they are going to face uh, in China. So this trend is already happening. So India is the go-to place and uh, the U.S. Uh, intention to show up its relation, uh, economic and uh, strategic relation with India is probably uh, uh, going to accelerate this trend. We just have 30 seconds, Ho Feng Hung, but I wanted to ask you about the role of China when it comes to uh, putting pressure on Russia around the Ukraine war or acting as a mediator. You already have China earlier this year uh, mediating an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, can you talk about what you see China's role could be? Yeah. There's little China can do that uh, Chinese government would not, uh, I, I won't think, uh, I don't think Chinese government would explicitly help Russia on the military side of the thing, but uh, many companies and private companies or semi-private and state companies in China can help Russia and then the Chinese government can disown them and saying that I don't know about it. Uh, so on one thing, China's interest is that the conflict in Ukraine uh, will prolong, so the Western alliance will be occupied with them. But at the same time, China really will be interested in participating in the post-war or kind of a reconstruction in Ukraine to, uh, to get some of the reconstruction contracts. So China cannot uh, present itself as too much uh, totally on the side of Russia. So China is caught in this kind of a dilemma right now, and uh, so far it is playing uh, relatively well. Well, Ho Feng Hung, we want to thank you for being with us, Professor of Political Economy and Sociology at Johns Hopkins Universities. Um, his books, Clash of Empires and New Cold War and the China Boom. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, we speak to Joy Bolamwini, the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, just after she met with President Biden in San Francisco to discuss the dangers of AI. Back in 30 seconds. Lion on the Hunt by Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. 
Amidst the boom in artificial intelligence and growing awareness of its potential risks, President Biden met Tuesday with critics of the technology. He spoke before the closed-door meeting in San Francisco. The same here today. I want to hear directly from the experts, and these are the world, some of the world's leading experts on this issue uh, and the intersection of technology and society, who we... Uh, we can provide uh, a range, who can provide a range of perspectives for us and uh, on AI's enormous promise and its risks. For years, groups like the Algorithmic Justice League have raised alarm about how AI and algorithms can spread racist and sexist biases. The group's founder, Dr. Joy Bolamwini, was among those who met with Biden Tuesday. She's going to join us in a minute. The group recently honored Robert Williams, who's African-American. And in 2020, he was the first known case of police wrongfully arresting someone in the United States based on a false facial recognition hit when Detroit police wrongfully arrested him at his home as his wife and two young daughters watched. He was held overnight in jail, interrogated the next day. Police told him, quote, the computer must have gotten it wrong and finally released him. This is part of the acceptance speech by Robert Williams when he received the Gender Shades Justice Award. I just, I just want to say to, uh, to anybody who's, who's listening at this point, I guess, just to have the opportunity to let my story be a forewarning to the, to the rest of the world that if it happened to me, it could happen to you, right? I, I just was a regular, regular. I was up, I was at work and was trying to get home and I got arrested for something I had that had nothing to do with me and I wasn't even in the vicinity of the crime when it happened. Right? So it's just that uh I guess the way the technology is set up, everybody with a driver's license or a state ID is essentially in a photo lineup. For more, we're joined in Boston by Dr. Joy Bolamwini, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, just back from that meeting with President Biden on artificial intelligence in Francisco. She's also featured in the documentary Coded Bias. Dr. Joy Bolamwini, welcome back to Democracy Now! You posted on Twitter uh, before meeting with President Biden that you were looking forward to the meeting to talk about the dangers of AI and what we can do to prevent harms already impacting everyday people like mortgages and housing in need of medical treatment, encountering workplace surveillance and more. I assume and more you're talking about issues like this uh, kind of um, false racial facial uh, recognition based on AI. Can you talk about the Williams case and so much more, what you discussed with President Biden? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I am actually hopeful after this uh, roundtable with uh, President Biden because we started the conversation really focused not just on what AI can do, which we've heard a lot about, but centering how it's impacting real people like we saw with uh, Robert Williams. With the Robert Williams case, what we saw was a case of AI-powered biometrics leading to a wrongful arrest. So the research that I've done and many others have done as well has shown documented racial bias 
gender bias and other types of biases in facial recognition systems. And when these systems are used in the real world, like we saw with the Robert Williams case, you actually have consequences. So for Robert to be arrested in front of his wife and in front of his two young daughters, you cannot erase those sorts of experiences. And then to be sleeping on a cold slab for 30 hours with just a filthy uh, faucet as a water source. So these are the types of real world harms that are concerning. And it's also not just on race, right? We have examples of hiring algorithms that have been showing uh, sexist hiring practices then being automated in a way that appears to be neutral. You have people being denied life-saving health care because of biased and inaccurate algorithms. And so I was very excited to see the Biden administration putting the real world harms in the center of this conversation. Joy, if you could just explain, you know, how is it that AI has been uh, has these kinds of biases? Because, of course, AI can only reflect what already exists. It's not coming up with something itself. So who are the programmers? How is it that these biases, as you say, not just on race, although particularly on race, but also gender and other issues, how are they embedded within AI systems? Well, the AI systems that we are seeing on the rise are increasingly pattern recognition systems. And so to teach a machine how to recognize a face or how to produce human-like text, like we're seeing with uh, some of the large language models, what you have are large data sets of examples. Here's a face, here's a sentence, here's a whole book, right? And based on that, you have these systems that can begin to learn different patterns. But if the data itself is biased or if it contains stereotypes or if it has toxic content, what you're going to learn is the good, the bad, and the ugly as well when it comes to large language models, for example. And then on the facial recognition side, if you have the underrepresentation of certain populations, it could be people with uh, darker skin, it could be children for good reason, we don't want their faces in those data sets, then when they're used in the real world, you have several risks. One is misidentification, right? What we saw with Robert Williams' case. But even if these systems were perfectly accurate, now we have to ask, do we want the face to be the last frontier of privacy because we're then creating a surveillance state apparatus. Well, Joy, let's go to a clip from A Coded Bias, uh, the film, a documentary film that you're featured in. Uh, this is Sophia Omuja Noble, the author of the book Algorithms of Oppression. The way we know about algorithmic impact is by looking at the outcomes. For example, when Americans are bet against and selected and optimized for failure. So it's like looking for a particular profile of people who can get a subprime mortgage and kind of betting against their failure and then foreclosing on them and wiping out their wealth. That was an algorithmic game that came out of Wall Street. During the mortgage crisis, you had the largest wipeout of black wealth in the history of the United States. 
just like that. This is what I mean by algorithmic oppression. The tyranny of these types of practices of discrimination have just become opaque. So that's a clip from Coded Bias, a documentary by Sharani Kantaya, which uh, you're featured in. Your comments, Ajoy. I think this is a great clip because it's showing that while we have all of these conversations about the possibilities of AI, the reality uh, shows the perils. And what's even more concerning to me right now is in this rush to adopt algorithmic uh, systems, there is a narrative that says we want to have trustworthy AI or we have to have responsible AI. But so many of the popular AI systems that have been built have been built on a foundation of oppression or foundation of uh, unconsented data. Some would say stolen uh, data. And so something that was concerning to me at the roundtable was there was an expressed excitement about using AI for education. But then when you looked at the models and the AI systems that were being integrated, these are known models where the companies aren't sharing the training data. Those who have labeled the toxic aspects of that data, right, have spoken out about the exploitative uh, working conditions that they face being paid, you know, one or two dollars uh, an hour for doing really traumatic uh, work. And so we can't build responsible AI or expect people to trust in AI systems when we have all of these terrible practices that are undergirding these foundation uh, models. So the foundations themselves need to be excavated and we need to start over. Dr. Bolamuni, can you talk about the project of Algorithmic Justice League that um, was just launched called um, a TSA Checkpoint Scorecard, fly.ajl.org, and how people can share their experiences dealing with a new facial recognition program that's being used at several airports across the country? Absolutely. So the TSA is starting to roll out facial recognition at domestic checkpoints. They're now at 25 airports. And this is concerning because the United States needs to start leading on biometric rights. Uh, just last week, we had uh, EU lawmakers uh, push forward the EU AI Act, which explicitly bans the use of biometric technologies like facial recognition in public spaces, the live use of this technology. We are flying in exactly the opposite direction where people don't even know, right, that they have a choice to opt out. And so what we're doing with the Algorithmic Justice League is we've released the scorecard. So if you have traveled this summer, if you're traveling this summer, please share your experience so we understand, did you give consent? What was your experience if you try to opt out that the technology work for you? I also I also think that this is a great opportunity for the U.S. government to put into place the blueprint uh, for a bill of rights for AI. And so this blueprint came out last year and it highlights so many of the issues that we've been talking about, which is the need for uh, notice 
and we need consent as well, but also we need protections from algorithmic discrimination. We need to know that these systems are safe and effective. We need data privacy so that you can't just snatch people's uh, faces, right? And we need human fallbacks as well. So I think it's a great opportunity for the Biden administration to make true on their promise to make what was put in the blueprint binding through the Office of Management and Budget, and then to push to make the blueprint uh, federal law. Can I ask you, as it becomes harder to travel longer and longer and longer lines, the other day I was at the airport, guy comes up, I was on an endless line, says, hey, you want to do clear? Uh, I will uh, get your information uh, and then I'll walk you right to the front of the line. It's very hard to say no to that, right, when you're missing your plane. Um, But can you explain what these iris scans are used for and also fingerprints? Uh, Yeah, so when you have systems like Clear, I want to make a distinction between you electing to use biometrics when you sign up for Clear or TSA PreCheck, where they might be looking at biometrics like your fingerprint, your uh, iris, or your face. This is different from what the TSA has stated in their roadmap, which is to go from pilot to requirement, so that the default option when you go to an airport is that you have to submit your face. This is what's in their roadmap. So agency is absolutely important. The right to refusal is absolutely important. And you just pointed out a dynamic that so many people face. You just made it to the airport. Your flight's about to go and you're given, I don't know, the red pill or the blue pill and you make a a snap decision. And I'm really cautious about these snap uh, decisions because I worry about what I call convenient shackles. So for the few seconds that you might save, or maybe minutes, etc., you now have given up very valuable face data. And we already have examples of data breaches uh, with the uh, government of travelers' face data. So it's not even hypothetical when we're talking about the privacy uh, risk that are here. And the roadmap that the TSA has laid out also talks about then using that face data potentially with other government agencies. So we have to understand that it doesn't just stop at the checkpoint. This is a pilot and a starting point that is going to move us towards more mass surveillance if we don't resist now, which is why we launch fly.ajl.org. That way you can let your voice be heard. You can let your experiences uh, be documented. And it's also not the case, for example, if your face has already been uh, scanned, that there's nothing that can be done. Uh, Meta Facebook deleted over 1 billion uh, face prints after a $650 million uh, settlement for violating the Biometric Information Privacy Act of Illinois. This is to say laws do make a difference. And again, I do think the U.S. has an opportunity to lead when it comes to biometric protections, but we are going in the opposite direction right now. So I would call for the federal government to halt TSA's pilot of domestic uh, facial recognition technology uh, at checkpoints. And if you've been subjected to it already, let us hear your story, fly.ajl.org. And Joy, finally, we just have 30 seconds, but if a Bill of Rights is put in place uh, with the uh, stipulations that you outlined, do you see any benefits of artificial intelligence? 
Oh, absolutely. So if we can have ethical uh, AI systems that do help us, for example, uh, with medical breakthroughs, I think that is something that is worth uh, developing. So I am not opposed to beneficial uses of AI, but we don't have to build it in a harmful way. We can enjoy the promise while mitigating the perils. Joy Balamwini, we want to thank you so much for being with us, computer scientist, coding expert, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. To see all our interviews on artificial intelligence, you can go to democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Gesder, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Teresa, Tammy Warrenoff, Jarena Nadura, Sam Malkoff, Tamari Astu, Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, Sanji Lopez, our executive directors, Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with Norman Sheikh. 